Shall we pray? Gracious Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Well, what type of document is this? Uh, one can of bolotti beans, one jar of tuna, one red onion, white wine vinegar, parsley, a lemon, tomatoes, salt and pepper, dishwashing liquid. It's a shopping list. Yes, it's a shopping list. Without the last item, it could be a recipe for fagioli e tono, Italian tuna and bean salad. But you know that dishwashing liquid doesn't usually go in a salad. Now, if your main language was Greek and you came across this document written in a combination of Hebrew and Aramaic, as the book of Daniel is, you might uh, not be so sure. Uh, you might think it was a recipe. And so it is with the Old Testament book of Daniel. It is nestled among the major and minor prophets. Just before we had the book of Ezekiel, uh, he lived in exile in Babylon during the time before and after the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586 BC. Uh, after the temple had been destroyed and the nobles and the elite had been taken into exile in Babylon. And you'd be thinking, that's exactly where Daniel fits in. And you might think, because the opening of Daniel sounds like a, a 6th century BC prophecy, like Ezekiel, that that is what it is. That it speaks of historical people. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the Persian uh, king Cyrus, and the historical events of the fall of Jerusalem and exile in Babylon. And you go, I know what it is. It's a recipe for Italian tuna and bean salad. Because you speak Greek and you're not familiar enough with Jewish language and culture to spot the dishwashing liquid. But it's there. There are lots of hints for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear that the book of Daniel is not what it seems. It's not a 6th century BC prophecy. It's not history. Some of the characters existed, Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, but probably not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Or, or if they did exist, they have been given the legendary treatment to make them more types rather than fully blown characters with the weaknesses and failures we associate with full blown characters. But the book of Daniel is still true and useful because it says some true and useful things about God and people of faith and what it means to trust and obey God. As we go on, I'll suggest that Daniel was not thrown into a den of lions and, uh, and his friends weren't thrown into a fiery furnace. They are extended metaphors or, or parables, a bit like the way that Jesus taught. 
We often talk about the parable of the prodigal son and we talk about the prodigal son and the elder brother and the father as if they're real people and we do the same when we look at the book of Daniel. And even though I don't think there was a lion's den into which Daniel was thrown or the, a fiery furnace for his friends, I still firmly believe in the miracles and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But with many contemporary biblical scholars, I don't think the author of Daniel expected his initial audience to read the book of Daniel as history. Those miracles that we will hear in the book of Daniel could have happened. I just think there are enough hints in the way that the book is written and presented for us to know that that's not the way we're supposed to read it. So where is the dishwashing liquid? And Daniel is not referred to in any of the history books that cover the 6th century BC, the books of two kings, two chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. He's not referred to anywhere outside the Bible. Uh, Daniel is only mentioned once in the whole of the New Testament, and that's a reasonably obscure reference, and he's not mentioned in the book of Hebrews where the heroes of the Old Testament are, uh, are listed. I mean, if anyone's going to be a hero of the Old Testament, it would be Daniel. He's the most exemplary man in the whole of the Old Testament, but he doesn't find it into that list. And I suggest because the, book, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews knew that... Daniel is being used metaphorically. There's none of the character development of these characters that we might expect in a, in a real person. Uh, also, uh, more dishwashing liquid. The book of Daniel has a freedom of plot that we don't associate with a history. The stories of the first six chapters each have a plot, but no plot links them. They use extraordinary and fantastic situations like knowing other people's dreams and uh, surviving lions in a furnace. And there's crude and lofty imagery that you wouldn't expect uh, in a history. And there are psychic states like Nebuchadnezzar's madness. There are a number of radical shifts in style, including prophecy and historical narrative and apocalypse and a number of other signals that all is not as it seems. Uh, two of the most significant signals to us are, first, a concern for ultimate questions. And we'll look at that today with the question of allegiance. And second, elements of a social utopia, uh, an age to come. And you don't usually get them in a history book. Well, we'll see the first, the one about ultimate questions today, and we'll look at the second, mainly when we get to the second uh, half of the book. The book of Daniel is best seen as a satire, aimed to poke fun at the Greek Seleucid overlords who ruled over Israel when this book was written. And, and it was designed to encourage these post-exilic Jews in very difficult times but also to consider the bigger questions. And you'll find that we look at the biggest questions of faith uh, in this book. 
And that's why I've chosen it for us to study it, because we're going through a period of suffering and uncertainty, and we need to stick close to God. And also because we need to know where we're going and what God has in store for us. And the book of Daniel will help us with that. Now, to understand the setting of the story, we need just a brief word of history. The kingdom of Israel was at its peak under David and Solomon around a thousand years before Christ. And then the kingdom split into two. The northern kingdom turned its back on God first and more thoroughly and was destroyed by the Assyrians around 722 BC. You don't need to remember these dates. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah limped on until it was destroyed by the new superpower, Babylon, home of the Chaldeans in the period from 596 to 586 BC. Uh, many Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon for 70 years. Uh, and that's where the story of Daniel is set. And then the, uh, then the Persians, under King Cyrus, who you heard at the end of that reading, conquered Babylon. Uh, and many Jews returned to Jerusalem and they started to rebuild the temple. The Persians gave way to Alexander the Great in uh, the late th 330 BCs, uh, and, the Greek, and Greek became the common language of the Middle East, including Israel. When Alexander died, his empire was split into four, with the Seleucid Greeks having control of Israel and the area around it. And they were notoriously brutal. And you can read about them in the, the book of Maccabees, which is one of the apocryphal books written in the period between the Old and the New Testaments. And there are some links between Maccabees and Daniel. So life was very tough for the Jews in the 3rd and 2nd century BC when Daniel was probably written. And as I said, we'll see that one purpose of the author, Daniel, who we don't know, don't know who wrote it, was to satirise and subvert the Greek Seleucid overlords and to encourage faithful perseverance among the Jews. Uh, another purpose was to provide a comprehensive picture of a universal God whose kingdom is irresistible and who saves people for eternity. We'll see that Daniel's Themes of true kingship and judgment and punishment for sin and transforming faith and redemption and salvation. And they prepare the way for the Christian doctrine of salvation to eternal life by grace. Although it only meets its fulfilment in Jesus. Of all the books in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel has more in common with some of the themes of the New Testament particularly the Son of Man, who we'll meet in chapter 7, and resurrection to a new glorious life. So with that rather lengthy introduction, let me turn to chapter 1 of Daniel. Let's set those nasty Greek Seleucids a false trail. Let's set the story 300 years before Let's have a, a famous Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, as the baddie, not a Greek overlord. 
Nebuchadnezzar captured and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 and carried many of the Jews into captivity in Babylon 2,700 kilometres away in modern-day Iraq. And that's three months by foot. The temple had been stripped and the gold articles placed in the temple of the Babylonian god. Not only were the Jews defeated, so was their god. No threat there to the Greek Seleucids. By the 2nd century BC, Nebuchadnezzar was dead and obviously was no threat. And Babylon had been destroyed by Cyrus and uh, his Persian Empire. But then the Greeks under Alexander had come and destroyed the Persians. No threat there at all. So chapter 1, on its surface shows the Jews were losers. And the Greeks knew that because they defeated them too. The story tells them that they, the Jews had lost Jerusalem and been carried into exile. And an, a Seleucid official picking up a scroll of the book of Daniel would have read, just scanned the first chapter and think, there's nothing to worry about here. And he would be wrong. We're told King Nebuchadnezzar chose some noble young Jews to be Babylonianized. They were to learn the language and literature of Babylon, perhaps in an effort to wipe out the culture and religion of the Jews. Having captured their bodies, Nebuchadnezzar then set out capturing their minds, just as the Greeks were doing. The first two steps in this cultural immersion involved food and names. They were to be fed Babylonian food from the king's table. And the four who uh, we will see over the next few chapters were given new names. Daniel was given the name Belteshar, Hananiah the name Shadrach, Mishael the name Meshach, and Azariah the name Abednego. There's a lot in these names. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh being the personal name of God. Mishael means who is, no, who is what God is. And Azariah means Yahweh has helped. All good theologically loaded Jewish names. Uh, you'd pick this up if you knew Hebrew, but not if you only knew Greek. The implication is that these are good Jews from devout, uh, God-fearing families. The names the Babylonian chief official gave them were loaded in the opposite direction. Scholars are not certain, but Belteshar may mean, Bel, guard my life. Bel was a Babylonian god. Abednego may mean servant of Nabu, which was another pagan god. And the other names have links with the names of other pagan gods. Uh, the four are renamed so that they can become good Babylonians. While Daniel and friends were, get referred to by their Jewish names from time to time in the rest of the book, they also get referred to by their Babylonian names. They appear to have accepted the apparent control that comes from being renamed. And you may ask, why they seem to have accepted these pagan names, 
but refused the yummy food and wine from the king's table. A food from the king's table may have been offered first to pagan gods, or it may have been in breach of the food restrictions given through Moses, or the food may signify allegiance to the Babylonian king. Either way, Daniel and his friends chose to not defile themselves with that food and wine. Whereas there was no law in Moses against living with a changed name. Uh, This flexibility is important when we come to consider what this might mean for us today. The story around the food looks simple, but a lot is happening from a theological perspective. Note first, verse 9. Now God had caused the chief official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. What is the God of Babylon Sorry, what is the God of Israel doing in Babylon? The general view in the Middle East at the time was that gods were regional. Their power was localised, but not the God of Israel. He had spoken the whole of creation into existence and was the God of the whole heavens and earth. Despite being 2,700 kilometres away, David and his friends were not alone. God was with them and exercising control over a Babylonian official. Uh, And that's good news if you're just picking up this book and you're a Jew. The chief official acted in part out of self-interest. He did not want Daniel wasting away to reflect badly on him. But we are also told that God had caused the guard to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. The refusal of the king's food did not bring punishment and they were provided vegetables and water to at least get by. Please do not be distracted by modern views about the risks and benefit of veganism and vegetarianism. Uh, Whether or not you think we can or should live on vegetables and water and, and thrive, the underlying idea when this was written was that you did better with some form of animal protein. Usually milk or cheese, as the meat was a luxury. And if you think that this is advocacy for veganism, while recognising the good moral reasons for that choice, may I quietly and respectfully draw your attention to chapter 10, where Daniel appears to have gone back to eating meat and drinking wine, uh, but presumably not from the king's table. The message that we're to draw from this is that despite a protein-depleted diet, God intervened to ensure Daniel and his friends would not only survive, but thrive. God was with Daniel and his friends and able and willing to help. God would honour and protect them if they continued to honour and obey him. This was a good message to hear if you were a second-century Jew being oppressed by Greek overlords who were making your allegiance to the God of Israel very hard. Which, if you look at the the book of Maccabees, included torturing a woman and her children for keeping to the Jewish food laws. That's exactly the issue that Daniel is dealing with here. Notice that God did not only keep them healthy, 
as they resisted things that would defile them. He also gave Daniel and his friends knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds, which will serve them well in the coming chapters. And they were able to use their their gifts from God to help Nebuchadnezzar and to find favour in his court in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. So the ultimate question that Daniel and his friends faced was, to whom should they show allegiance? And how were they to show allegiance? Clearly the answer to the first question is to God not to Nebuchadnezzar or any human authority. Did you notice that it was God who was behind the initial fall of Jerusalem? He delivered the Jewish king Jehoiakim and Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar because they had been unfaithful to God. It was God who gave Daniel wisdom to work out how to survive in Nebuchadnezzar's court, to stay alive and yet still show allegiance to God. And did you notice that it was God who helped them outlive Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire and last until it was conquered by Cyrus? And this Cyrus would give the Jews permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So God helped Daniel survive through all the ordeals that we'll hear about in the following chapters. And that's good news if you're living under an oppressive regime. It's dishwashing liquid if you're a Jew looking for good news in this story. As to how Daniel and his friends should withstand the challenges of a king and culture that wanted to subsume, there are basically three options. First, give in. Eat food from the king's table. Change their allegiance from God to Nebuchadnezzar and you'll survive. Second, they could renounce any contact with their captures, live apart and try to form a ghetto of resistance and most likely become martyrs. There is a time for that, as we'll see in chapter 3. Martyrdom is, is, of course, something that we've seen far too much for the last 2,000 years as Christians have had their lives taken because of their faith. And I don't want to take anything away from their suffering and sacrifice. Yet sometimes there is a third way, as shown by Daniel and also taught by Jesus. And that is to be flexible without dishonouring God and trying to transform the world around us. It's the course we heard Jesus commend in the second reading today. Keep your saltiness so that you can add God's flavour to the world and preserve it. Salt was their main preservative. So Jesus was asking them to preserve what is good and be light in the world. Not not to hide away totally. When you can, don't hide your devotion to God and use the gifts he gives you to help those around you. Through words and actions, love your neighbours And that's just what we see Daniel doing here. 
and we'll see that more in the coming weeks. For most of us, most of the time, that seems the best way forward. Be flexible, but know and stick to the things that matter. Use your money when you can to do good by supporting this church, charities, missionaries, and other people in need. Do not chase advancement at work at any cost. Sure, it's good to try and get into positions of power and influence because you can do good there, but don't do it at any cost. Make time in your busy lives for church, maybe Bible study and whatever other ways uh, you want to show your allegiance to God. And resist the temptations of this age, whether they're conspicuous consumption or gossip or drunkenness or sexual immorality or whatever other challenges uh, come your way. And do as Daniel did. Choose early. In, In a new workplace or friendship, don't hide your ultimate allegiance to God. If people know you're a Christian early, most of them will accept you do things differently. But if you start off hiding that uh, and go along with them in things that you later regret, it's, it's so much harder to, to, to hit the reset button. Uh, when I first met Carlin, my wife in Singapore, uh, she was a Christian, I was an atheist. And uh, I asked her very, very early on, what, what do you do on weekends? And she said, well, on Saturday, I meet up with some Christian friends of ours. We're in an evangelism group and we organise concerts and evangelism and we look at the Bible. And on Sunday, I go to church. And I worked out pretty clearly then that if I wanted to get to know Carlin better, I I was going to have to fit in with what she did on weekends. But just imagine if she'd said, oh, you know, just hang out, see a few friends. You know, I'd have thought that we, we could do anything on the weekend. Much, much better to get in early and say, no, this is what I do. This is what's important to me. And if you want to be my friend, you're going to have to find some way to work with this. I know it's not easy uh, if your families regularly arrange events on Sunday mornings or if you have a boss who does not understand that you have other allegiances. But the challenge is to ask God for wisdom and to trust that he will help you through. And don't shy away from that crucial question. Am I where I want to be? So you can see on the surface why the book of Daniel would not look uh, suspicious to Greek overlords. It's set in the past, a long way away. The Jews were respectful in accepting the control Uh, of um, uh, evidence by the change of names, and they were helpful to their foreign overlords. There's nothing revolutionary or threatening here on the surface. But to a Jew, there are reminders that God is the one who is ultimately in control, and he rewards those who remain loyal to him. He can control all human authorities and enabled Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar's initial success. He inspired Daniel's resistance to defilement. He saw him retain health and gave him the wisdom and other gifts to not only survive, but to be in a position to provide help, to love his neighbours, even to love his enemies. 
and God will see his people through to the end. Daniel outlived the Babylonian Empire. It is God who is in ultimate control, and it is to God to whom we owe our ultimate allegiance. That's what the book of Daniel is about. Are we resolved to show our allegiance to the God who is ultimately in control and will see us through to the end? My prayer is that we are. And now we may call upon God with our next song. God is our help and refuge. Please stand and sing with us.